Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. This episode of The Observatory is sponsored by Designers and Books, presenter of the Designers and Books Fair. It's the only book fair in the world devoted to the many kinds of design there are. The Designers and Books Fair will be held October 2nd, 3rd, and 4th at the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. For more information, go to designbookfair.com. On each episode of The Observatory, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. Syria has been caught up in a civil war for four years, and we've all seen uh, numerous devastating images from this war. Uh, But the photograph of a three-year-old child lying uh, dead on a Turkish beach has refocused Americans and Europeans on the plight of refugees fleeing the conflict. Uh, If you haven't seen the picture, which has gone viral, uh, we will share it certainly on our website. Michael, why do you think this image has been Um, so affecting? I think it actually comes down to a fairly simple thing, particularly uh, to a Westerner. it's, it's, It's shocking to see that image of that child with his head turned away from you, clad in the most kind of um, child's picture book sort of, um, you know, clothing, you know, sneakers and, you know, shorts and shirt, primary colors, very simple kind of almost uh, an every child sort of image. And the fact that we don't see his face uh, kind of makes him stand in for every son you might have, every nephew you might have, every kid you might see on your own corner, no matter where you are. And I think um, it's just one of those uh, uh, images that manages to transcend, you know, to use a a trendy sort of construct, uh, the otherness that I think we assign to a lot of times, these images of, of bad things that are happening in other places. This seems so immediate, so shocking, and just so... Um, uh, j- just so very much um, uh, relatable that I think it just you know has become this you know a, a fallen soldier in a way for this uh, amazing tragedy. David Miliband, who's the former British minister, said something interesting. He's currently the president of the International Rescue Committee, and he made the comment that I think many visual people would agree with. We live in a world where there are a billion images a day, so images, he said, become mm. diluted. Um, and he made the point that you're making, Michael, that he looks like yeah. your child or my child, but he's not. He's a Muslim child, right? You can't tell that he's a Muslim child in the photograph. Uh, he could be Chinese. He could be, um, um, you know, he could be English. He could be uh, Turkish. He could be Arab, you know. But what about, I mean, so, so so you get an image like this, and it puts a face on this terrible humanitarian crisis. But then the next step is the ethical nature of the questions surrounding the distribution and the dissemination of the image. So we can't protect images from going viral. Um, But many people have speculated, uh, journalists, designers, photographers, on what's appropriate uh, and whether it further victimizes the child, his family, his country, to use him as a symbol for that humanitarian crisis. Do you have an opinion about that? This is exactly the kind of image where um, there, in, at one time in, in history, you know, the quest to figure out who that person, who that child is, could have taken decades of research by, uh, uh, by scholars before they finally identified him. And, and, and conceivably, he could have gone unidentified forever. You know, now um, we know his name, we know his family, um, all that information is available online. And so it's sort of, it, it kind of creates this really... Um, um, kind of curious thing where the you know the status of like you know 
um, the unknown kind of avatar of a movement, you know, suddenly becomes someone very specific. So I think it does raise some perhaps troubling ethical questions, uh, particularly when the image gets manipulated in different ways where that image, in effect, has been hijacked by uh, the very people that it it seems to be uh, uh, intended to condemn, right? Which is just a horrifying spiral of kind of meta questionable practice that that I I do want to talk about. But first, I wanted to just say one thing about what you just said, which is that um, journalists are being interviewed about their position on this. And this this is not news. I mean, journalists have always had to defend their position on whether to share a picture. A story, when you trade in words, I think stories can be interpreted verbally, linguistically, uh, at a different pace and with a different sort of part of your mind and your heart. But a picture is really impactful. And uh, so, so here are all these journalists across the world. I mean, the picture was published in the German tabloid Bild. It was published in The Independent. Uh, the Guardian, the head of the media desk at The Guardian, uh, talked about the, 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 the arguments that, that are pro and con. And so there's a lot of sort of stories about the stories, right? But I thought it was interesting that this guy, Brendan O'Neill, who writes for The Spectator, he called this thing morality mm. porn. And he said that sharing a dead photo, a photo of a dead Syrian child isn't compassionate. It was, it's, a, it's an act of narcissism. And he said it was the victory of the visceral over the rational. And the point he made, which I thought was a really good one, wasn't so much the decision to publish or not publish. It's what happens afterwards. It's the Twitter verse. It's the fact that people, in his opinion, and, and I tend to agree with this, I thought this was really quite a compelling argument, that people feel good about themselves for retweeting and sharing something tragic, as though that in and of itself is an expression of their own compassion. And of course, it costs them nothing. It doesn't. Co- they, they know not the family, nor the circumstance. They know what they've read. They see this tragic story. They say, this could be my child, and off it goes into, into their Twitter feed. And it's not necessarily an act of, of, uh, of judgment, um, as so much as it's an easy act of compassion, which makes it really not compassion. It does make it an act of narcissism. And I, and I, I think it's actually worth considering uh, that that the role that we play when we reshare and what that means in terms of uh, the distribution of information and other people's um, responses. Well, what alternative is being proposed to that? I mean, the obvious alternative is that, uh, um, you know, one option would be, that, one outcome would be that no one um, knows that this is really happening and no one cares that it's happening, right? And so that's, and that's actually most horrible things in the world exist in that state, you know, uh, the awful you know, you know, th- tens of thousands of people can die, and justice happens every day. Just ghastly things are happening, even as you and I speak, and uh, most people are blissfully unaware of them. So occasionally, something breaks through and captures the world's attention, right? And it, it. And, and and these days, and maybe since time immemorial, it's generally happened in a visceral, emotional way, as opposed to a measured, rational way. Maybe the thing that I'm I'm uh, interested in here, in, in the context of this conversation, is not what civilians do to just effortlessly share, which of course makes the trafficking of that image that much more impactful. Yeah, one could say that that's actually a powerful thing, that we're all as civilians capable of responding to something tragic, and by sharing a picture, we get the word out and we become citizen journalists. Fair enough. 
But at the same time, the, the real question comes back to journalists and to people who, whose persuasive mechanisms of, of the sheer scale of operation that is a newspaper, a blog, a site that actually many hundreds of thousands of people look at, how the, how the dissemination of that image – and really, we're talking about pictures, yeah, yeah. not words here. We're talking about how one – Single picture. One picture. Single picture. And in the yeah. case of – Single picture, and in the case of the New York Times, I mean, they they, they did a there's a, a wonderful, um, beautifully done, very thoughtfully done uh, series of stories uh, that the New York Times has done. The photojournalist working now, um, uh, Paolo Pellegrini, is actually a Magnum photographer, I think, um, did a beautiful piece for the magazine about the migrants um, coming over in boats. Uh, and how how uh, these pictures are all black and white. There's sort of a white type on a black background, and you can follow the story and, and start to understand the sheer scale, the numbers. I mean, we're talking about this child, of course, to come back, single image, single person, one story at one time being seen by millions of people. But we're looking at, you know, Syrian uh, refugees. I mean, you know, 6.5 million people internally displaced within Syria. And this is, a, this is a diaspora that has been characterized by the UN as the worst since the Rwandan genocide in 1994, when, to your point, we did not have viral yes, no. transmittal at our beck and call where we can actually share these images. So the numbers are very powerful. And here you've got sort of many numbers, multiple stories, and a single picture. And somehow, in tandem, those conditions become very powerful. But ethically questionable. What I find interesting is that I am, like you, a tremendous admirer of the kind of in-depth photojournalism that I think that uh, that New York Times piece that uh, Pellegrin uh, did, which I just, it's, it's just extraordinary. It's got so much depth. You know, it sort of has a combination of photographs and moving images. So it's really, beautifully written, really, and, really and well, wonderfully, well written, so well written, thoughtfully written. There's some, what's what's interesting about that, and it didn't even occur to me until you mentioned it is that one of the reasons that I responded to that so enthusiastically or with such interest uh, was that it actually was framed in a way that I personally as a kind of educated um, you know uh, um, you know um, aesthetically bent um, you know westerner and, and programmed to respond to in a way it's like got that aestheticized black and white photography that we associate with Magnum it looks like the kind of great photojournalism we associate with Robert Kappa, Kappa and all these people going back in the time so it's sort of is you know in a way it's trafficking in um, in the same sort of visual trappings and a kind of visual code that that in a way is you know, you know, is its own sort of filter on information, and the filter. And this is a filter that's, that's meant to communicate. You know, this is serious photojournalism that we're going to give it, deliver it to you in depth. In a way, I, you know, I mean, I, I could make a counter argument that I'm reluctant to do, but I'll do it as a, a devil's advocate that there's as much aestheticization and disaster porn quality to something like that, it's, except it's on a very, very high level. But mm -hmm. it's still that same process of sort of like image culture, kind of framing images in ways where the framing itself is governing your reaction as much as the content, you know? I mean, I think there's, a, there's, there's people who might have missed, you know, that image of that child on the beach kind of going around, or having seen that would have just thought... Uh, it would have sort of seen it as being something sort of sensationalized who'd respond to the New York Times thing and think, oh, this is really like a, you know, serious crisis, you know, and kind of engage with it that way. So I think maybe at the end of the day, it's just that there are all these different tools that are available to people who who create images and use images to communicate. And um, 
you know, in this kind of vast global market of people that are all vying for attention, you know, all different techniques can kind of speak to different people and communicate different things. Right. So you're talking about the aestheticization of that New York Times story. Yeah, you could exactly. also say it was an editorial conceit because yeah, he, he yeah, does, sure. it's one of the beautiful things in it, uh, really harrowing but beautiful. But but this shock is also something that that single photo brings to bear on, on our memories. And I think, you know, the one image that comes to mind with, with that child is the, the Nick Ut photograph of the of the um, napalm of girl. Of course, yeah. This photograph depicting children fleeing from a napalm bomb. But there was another image that I was reminded of, and I, and I had to go back and find it. Uh, and this is a, a picture that was widely disseminated across the world in 1985, uh, uh, I believe it was, in Colombia. There was a, a, a volcanic eruption. This is the second deadliest volcanic disaster of the 20th century that was surpassed only by the famous Mount Pelé in 1902. And it happened in a part of Colombia called Armero. It was, became later known as the Armero Tragedy. And it happened so quickly that the rescuers in planes and doctors and so forth could not actually land on, on stable ground. And there's a, a photograph of a child that was taken by a French photographer uh, named uh, Frank Fournier uh, that became the sort of poster child, if you forgive the expression, very much like this this child um, that we were talking about, uh, the Syrian refugee child who whose body washed up on the beach last week in Turkey. Um, and Isabel Allende, the writer, um, a Peruvian writer, wrote a short story collection uh, a number of years later called The Stories of Eva Luna. And the last story in that collection uh, has a beautiful title. It's called And of Clay We Are Created. And it's based on this young girl. She was 13 mm. years old. Her name was Omira Sanchez. Picture. Yeah, yeah. Incredible picture. And she's basically, the, the volcanic eruption came. Her house fell down. She was trapped under the rubble. Her aunt apparently was uh, already had perished and was holding onto her legs. So between the, the dead weight of her aunt holding her and her legs under the rubble, they could not free her. She lasted, I think, for about three days. Um, and uh, they, this photographer almost never left her side, and he talked to her. She was, of mm -hmm. course, hallucinating by the end. And the picture is just remarkable. Her eyes are filled with mud. She's got these beautiful, big, almond-shaped eyes. She's 13 years old. Uh, and uh, it was, of course, characterized then as the, this uh, unbelievable victim of a, of a story that shouldn't have happened because the warnings hadn't been expressed in such a way that the, the, they could make sense of, of how to how to secure the town, secure this this part of the country in order to not have a disaster claim this many lives. Um, so that image, and partly because of, of uh, it becoming a series of short stories, and, and Isabel Allende wrote about it, talked about it, has, has discussed it a lot, but it, it, is a, it was a terrible natural disaster in Colombia, not not a, a humanitarian disaster in the same way as what's going on in Eritrea and Syria. And, but in a sense, the idea that a child's photograph becomes the emblem for uh, something that the rest of us feel so incapacitated by uh, raises a very similar question. Of course, in those days, you couldn't make something trend virally the way you can now, but it was on the cover of Time magazine. It was on the cover of numerous magazines and widely discussed and very controversial in its moment. Um, in a way, what we're talking about is the difference between two different kinds of storytelling. One that focuses on the specific and uses a single instance to sort of conjure up the whole. And then there's the other one, the more sweeping uh, photojournalistic tradition of telling a story of 
multitudes in in peril that I think is uh, uh, is very much the tr- you know the Pellegrini story is very much in that tradition and both of them are, are are can be compelling and necessary I think that first kind you know a single image that sums things up is probably you know ideally suited to you know today's social media age in a way that uh, uh, that the longer form, more in-depth story is not. But I think what we what we're seeing now, I think, which I find very exciting and and uh, and promising, is um, companies like the Guardian or the New York Times really trying hard to figure out how the tradition of in-depth photojournalism can be adapted to the digital age and and possess that same sort of uh, ability to. Um, reach large numbers of people with a compelling story that is both visceral but also has the kind of um, uh, you know depth and thoughtfulness that we associate with uh, the best kinds of journalism. And now a word from our sponsor. The Designers and Books Fair is the only book fair in the world devoted to the many kinds of design. Presented by Designers and Books and the Fashion Institute of Technology, The Designers and Books Fair will be held October 2nd, 3rd, and 4th at FIT in New York. And if you're there and you buy my new book, How To, you have a chance to win a lunch with me and a tour of uh, Pentagram, where I work. Um, Or, um, if you'd prefer, I'll just give you money. You can go have lunch with someone you'd rather have lunch with more than me. <laughs> One way or another, you will have a nice lunch. doesn't even have to be someone at Panagram. It could just be someone. <laughs> no, no, it could be just Hot dog a, stand. Yeah, someone else. Yeah. I'll, I'll okay. arrange a lunch with someone you really want to meet. But at any rate, um, it's, uh, um, uh, the fair is um, a really great, almost uh, utopian kind of world if you care about designers and books. Uh, um, and you've always longed to go someplace where basically everything you look and touch and hear and smell are basically revolving around those two subjects, uh, FIT, at the beginning of October, will be the place to be. For more information about the Designers and Books Fair, go to designbookfair.com. Um, so at that fair, I bet we're going to see a copy of this new book, which is fairly humongous. It is uh, called um, Airline Visual Identity, 1945-1975. It's a $400, 14-pound book, and it's basically a visual history of what we could call the jet set era, the sort of the glory days of world aviation, where, um, uh, where you know, flying was really an event and uh, was really, really um, glamorous. And you sort of see that in these, uh, uh, you know, destination posters and airline posters uh, that the book just kind of pays this gorgeous symphonic tribute to and i you know it's it's one of those rare books actually that uh um I, you know i'm not sure that everyone needs to run out and buy a 400 hundred dollar book but it is one of those ones where uh that weighs it, like 24 pounds doesn't it it's just enormous it weighs a mere 14 pounds uh, oh, but um me. but uh but what's you know i mean if you think about it a um a fairly inexpensive plane ticket to your favorite destination you'd be lucky to get for $400. I would say if you want to um, really take a trip in your armchair through the magic of graphic design, uh, the, a $400 investment on in this book would actually uh, repay itself many times over. 
And the the posters are actually it's, it's large, so you really get to see these things yeah. in the scale in which they were intended. Uh, they're glamorous. They are evocative of a time and place that is not now. It's I think the book it's the the it's post war, so it's nineteen forty five to about nineteen seventy two. And interestingly, during this period, a lot of these posters were created anonymously, um, which is which is sort of tragic in a way. I mean, there's Termaif and Geismar, and there's Saul Bass, and there's some people who will be recognized. Um, uh, as as designers working, uh, thriving, I would say, during that period. But uh, th- many of them actually were done by people who are, are anonymous, and which is, you know, kind of interesting, I think. Do, do you have, like, any um, favorite images from this book? Or do you really like those anonymous, the, the classic sort of um, uh, luggage label style uh, destination poster? Well, I'm, I'm a, you know, an incorrigible romantic, and so I, I like, you know, anything that's France and the stuff from the, you mm, know, or yeah. the, the, all the Air France things at night. Um, I, you know, I love the ones that, that you know, hark back to, uh, you know, not great 1930s and 40s posters like Eckersley and yeah, yeah. Uh, these, these great kind of, you know, silkscreen-looking things. Um, but uh, I think mostly it's, it's, you know, the color palettes, it's the typography, uh, it's the scale of them. Uh, do you have a favorite? Well, you know what's interesting is the the almost like the the final endpoint of these uh, of of all these posters is the series that um, Shermer and Geismar did for indeed Pan Am uh, in the seventies, and these posters are startlingly different from your typical image of a travel poster. They're simply a beautiful. Each poster is a beautiful just uh, completely enveloping, full-bleed photograph, color photograph of a destination. And then on that destination are simply two bits of type just placed absolutely right. And one always says the name of the destination, like Bali, and the other one says Pan Am. And they're so concise and so... um, uh, so completely, um, uh, and, and and I felt the same way about the Lufthansa ones. Yeah, yeah, with the, yeah. With the unbelievably beautiful, the Helvetica filling the entire space. The one that's for the Helvetica Alps. Yeah. Um, the, the offset photograph. You feel feel like you're on the moon. Yeah, I know. Right. I mean, yeah. they're just they're so understated. Yeah, yeah. There, there's something about those, and those just kind of like actually just are kind of like the end point of this sort of confidence that you know. We just don't bring you the world. We are the world. You know that right. Pan Am. The, the other thing, you to, to, to your point, the other thing about the uh, Tremayf and Geismar ones is they're not from 1971 and 72, and they work just as well today. I know. I mean, well, exactly. they're unlike they're they're unlike all the others because they're so timeless. Yeah, and yeah, what's, it's really interesting. It sort of is um, um, people who are seeking uh, to make the case that. Um, uh, the goal of modernism was to actually escape uh, the kind of kitsch that's, that, that, that's associated with, um, you know, period pieces and nostalgia and everything else. Could really point to those posters as examples of how it's possible to transcend that. A Pan Am or any airline could come out with those today. And um, some people would say they're boring because they're Helvetica, but I think most people would simply be drawn in. You the would never say they're boring because they're Helvetica. That's I hear, I hear you people would say, say. I hear, I hear people say <laughs> that. No one says that to me, but I understand that some people out there say that. Um, but, but I speaking, think, that, yeah. Sorry, but go speaking ahead. of this kind of, you know, the great heyday of drama of the '60s, '70s, sort of Mad Men era, um, you recently went to see that show at the Jewish Museum called "Revolution of the Eye: Modern mm. Art and the Birth of American Television." I mean, there's some overlap there, but between the, the sort of glamour days of Jed yeah, Travel yeah. in the 60s and yeah, 70s it, and what you saw, right? 
Yeah, oh, it's, abs- it's, it's almost exactly the same period. And it's, um, I, um, the Jewish Museum up on uh, Upper Fifth Avenue in New York is known for having a really delightfully um, eclectic sort of purview in terms of the kind of exhibitions they put on. And um, this one, which, uh, full disclosure, I'll say, was uh, designed by my partner at Pentagram, Abbott Miller, and he also designed a beautiful catalog for it, a beautiful, really interesting to read catalog for it, um, is really about kind of the the... the interaction between the worlds of uh, commercial television and uh, modern art and design that uh, happened in post-war America. And I think you're exactly right, Jessica. It, it sort of is, again, sort of this, uh, um, it's got this exuberance and confidence and kind of modernity, unabashed modernity to it. You know, we live in a modern world, and in the modern world, you know, um, art and design and communication are all one. And I think it's also, you get the sense of people experimenting with a, new medium and trying to figure out what the visual language for that medium might be. And the medium in this case is television. And I think like anyone uh, who, um, uh, you know, anyone working in for startups or in, uh, you know, in the tech industries and trying to do design where you're really trying to figure out how you make something look new, I think could learn something uh, by looking at the work of, you know, names that we know now, like, like, you know, William Golden and Lou Dorsman, um, Saul Bass, and, and, and indeed, uh, you know, Eero Saarinen, architects, set designers, all these people who then were kind of inventing, f- trying to come invent a visual language for a medium that, uh, um, that really, you know, had, had no precedent at that point. It was not just radio with pictures. It was something entirely new. It's interesting to watch in the show. You sort of see them trying to figure out what that something new is. You know, that uh, William Golden uh, CBSI, I I have to say, I've written about this, but it bears repeating here at this moment, which is that uh, when I was a child, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, and that logo would come up on the little Zenith television in my parents' bedroom, and I would see that CBSI, I would run and hide under the bed. (laughs) <laughs> I found it the most terrifying thing, and I, I've reflected on this because I don't know if the idea that I chose as my life's work being a designer when I had that kind of horrifying reaction to a logo really gives me pause <laughs> even now. Um, but it, there's some beautiful things reproduced in this exhibit, um, uh, one that, that's actually uh, on the Jewish Museum site that shows the eye within the eye within the eye, which may be yeah. exactly what scared me. I mean, this thing followed me across the room yeah. wherever I went. <laughs> Um, but um, but those things, I mean, you know, I, there's a there's a show that just opened at the Herb LeBallon Center at the Cooper Union downtown in New York, uh, in which uh, the curator asked 30 designers to each pick something in the collection and write about it. The things that are in that show reminded me of some of the things that are on exhibit at the Jewish Museum because mm-hmm. they're yeah, they're no. they're they're basically capturing a period in American graphic design history where logos and stationary programs and the humor in some of the things these people did and the scale relationships and people working in black and white people of course still doing mechanicals for the things that appeared in black and white newspaper ads. I remember being a young student and thinking I want to grow up and do this kind of thing. These guys these guys were funny. They were elegant. They did a lot with a little, and uh, the humor actually is what I'd forgotten about. And, and I was standing at that show the other night, looking looking at the things that are on exhibit, and remembering uh, just how impactful they were in my life as a young designer. Wondering how you got to a point where somebody would ask you to be funny and be visual. 
Yeah, and, and, and it's true. There's this kind of combination that 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 it's that you seldom see anymore of like, on one hand, really great taste and just absolute control of of the tools of design, visual mastery on one hand, and this other kind of like loose, casual kind of sense of anything goes freedom that um, you can make a joke, you can say something funny, you can toss something off. Not everything has to be serious. And in fact, you sort of see that both in the Jewish Museum show and I know in a lot of holdings in the Lou Ballon, in the Lou yes. Ballon collection. Very Korean. much so. You'll see like, you know, someone like Bill Golden or Lou Dorsman taking that CBSI, which is, you know, as terrifying as, as it seemed to you, <laughs> um, you know, a, a, you know a cor- a, effectively a corporate logo, and they will treat it with such... Um, I mean, they just do everything to it. You know, they'll they'll do like one crazy thing after another to it, and all all the while, kind of um, doing stuff that in most corporate identity manuals you would say you can't do anymore, or for a long time they said you couldn't do, and then they just would do it with just freedom and panache and uh, make it uh, come off. You know, I went to Yale in the in the you know at a time when the the uh, um, all of my faculty had gone to the Kunstgewerbe School in Basel. They had all uh, come of age at Black Mountain College. They were in the trajectory of people like uh, Armin Hoffman and Joseph Albers. Nobody used a typeface like this. Like <laughs> so, I would come home and my father who uh, worked for a pharmaceutical company and had, uh, was very interested in design and the history of printing, would have these things lying around the house. And I would look at this and I would think, this is magnificent to me. And the black and the white and the bracketed serif and the fact that there was humor, the fact that there was you know, the, the playfulness and the gesture of this kind of work I thought was so fascinating. And I just, I, you know, I looked at it again now, you know, 30 years after seeing it for the first time, and I still thought it was just so, just made me deliriously happy to look at. And, and I also thought to, to, to actually be charged with the idea of making television work in print, that yeah, challenge yeah, yeah. really, I thought, was really quite, quite compelling. Like, that's tough. You have to yeah. make those letter forms look like they're dancing across the page, and he did it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, 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 and unlike... Um, uh, you know, the kind of rigorous form-based education that was associated in those days with places like uh, Basel and Black Mountain and Yale and my alma mater, University of Cincinnati. Um, you could do you could do weeks of graphic design in those environments. And, and, and basically, the ideal was always contrast or scale or, you know, composition. That was like the, like the form was the idea. And the fact that people like Dorsman and Golden and Lou Ballin and Bass and all those guys there just never hesitated to make the to, to have a real idea, to have an idea and figure out how to make the form serve the idea, not the form be the idea. And I think in that ad you saw it. And I think they all, and they also just kind of just were willing to uh, uh, not, you know, to, to no job was too small, no, you know, the small space ads you see, uh, um, from those from that period, you know, there'll be two by two tune-in ads for CBS that are just as sh- sharp and funny and um, and well conceived as things that they obviously spent a lot of money on. Oh, it's funny because you mentioned pharmaceutical companies, um, and I think it's a field where you sort of don't. On one hand, you sort of think of them with the tradition of again Swiss design and Sibagaygi as having right, exactly. a great tradition. Uh, Lou Ballin worked for years for a. Um, an ad agency in New York called Settler and Hennessy, and uh, 
Uh, but they did, he, didn't he become a partner? Didn't it become Sutler, Hennessy, and LeBallon at one point? I think you know. They, I think they tried all sorts of, and and you know, and also if you you know if you go through the LeBallon book, you'll see that he had more letterheads than you know. Than, oh no, he was he was he was like a letterhead palooza. <laughs> and, and 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 a lot of times, I sort of sense that he would actually make partnerships with people just because he liked the way their names looked in certain typefaces and wanted to do a letterhead LeBallon and so and so. You know, and so it's. I mean, it really is. Uh, I think that that may be true, but I. Uh, um, but and so he was like really a powerhouse there. But you sort of see he built his reputation just on the most modest, modest uh, um, opportunities, and he made those opportunities into pure gold. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. If you go there, you find links to the things we discussed today, including Revolution of the Eye, that show at the Jewish Museum, on show there to the end of September, and then touring to various venues around the country in the next couple years. So uh, check it out. Between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. Let us know what you thought of the show and if there's something you want to hear us talk about next time. You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash theobservatory. That's designobserver.com slash theobservatory. And if you're not listening already, please tune into our other podcast, Design Matters, with Debbie Millman. Thanks to the Designers and Books Fair for sponsoring this episode of The Observatory. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Michael. Thanks, Jessica. Talk to you soon.